Well, I want you to open up your Bibles to the book of First Peter today. First Peter chapter, um, I'll tell you what, go ahead and go to chapter two. Let me see, verses 24. 1 Peter chapter two, verse 24. We're actually gonna camp out in 1 Peter three, chapter one today, but we'll start there in 24 and 25 of chapter two. Now, if you're new to the stone, one of the things we do is we go verse by verse through the Bible. And we are in the book of 1 Peter. And we're gonna kind of camp out on chapter three today, which is uh, the first verse of chapter three is one of the most culturally controversial parts of the entire Bible, um, which is God's call to women to submit to their husbands. And I am so stinking thankful that I got to preach on this today. Me and uh, Halim fought for quite some time on who's gonna have to preach this sermon, and I obviously lost. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. It, you know, one of the things that I'm gonna spend a lot of time on as we, uh, as we address this is we're gonna talk about, like, why in the world is this in the Bible? A lot of times people... Um, you know, they, they jump too quick to application and say, okay, here's what it looks like for women to submit their husbands. Here's what it doesn't look, look like. And they kind of skip the why. Like, why in the world is this in the Bible in the first place? And so I'm gonna hang out there and talk about that at, at, at great length. And I, and I think you'll realize pretty quickly that this has um, been kind of abused over the years. It doesn't mean what you think it means at all, and, but has a much deeper God-glorifying meaning. So a couple things before we jump to the text. One, I want you to remember exactly that, 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 that there have been very few scriptures in all of history that have been more misunderstood than this one. They've been more abused than this one. Men have used this verse as fodder to, um, to kind of put women in an inferior position of them or to subjugate them or to get them to do whatever they wanted them to do. It's also been misunderstood to, to be teaching that men are somehow superior to women, which is not at all what it's saying. Um, and when you really start digging into it, when you, when you really look at the context of, of what Peter is saying in his overall argument of chapter two and in chapter three, you realize that the way that men have used this verse throughout history was never the God intended purpose of this verse. And so that's the first thing I want you to remember. <clears throat> Here's the second thing. It's important to understand that, uh, it rather, it's important to look at this scripture in light of the overall treatment of women in the Bible, which over and over and over again does something really radical for, the first, for a first century document. Um, not really radical, it's unbelievably radical for a first century document. And that is to make it absolutely clear that women are equal to men in, in, in the eyes of the Lord and in value, right? That is absolutely unheard of in first century literature. Listen to Galatians chapter three, don't turn there. Galatians chapter three, verse 27. <clears throat> Excuse me, it says, for as many as you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. And so Paul says, all right, you're now in Jesus. You, you're now, you've put on Christ if you're a believer. And he says, now because of that, there is neither Jew nor Greek. In Christ Jesus, there's no longer any race. We're equal at the foot of the cross. He says, there's, there's neither slave nor free. There's no longer these class distinctions anymore. We're equal at the foot of the cross. And then he says something again, radical for the first century. He says, there is neither male nor female. 
There's no longer this distinction of quality or value between men and women. We're equal at the foot of the cross. He says, for you are, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 29, he says, and if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring and you're heirs according to the promise. And what that just said is that in Christ Jesus, women are 100% equal in value in the eyes of the Lord to the point that in the same way that a firstborn son in that culture would receive the inheritance of his father, that women are co-heirs to the eternal kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. Look, that is unbelievably radical. It's unbelievably radical. There is no other document that I'm aware of in all of ancient civilization that elevates women to an equal status to men, and the Bible does. And so you gotta be, you gotta, that's gotta be the lens through which you kind of approach this verse. And three, it's absolutely critical. It's critical that you don't look at 1 Peter 3.1 as a standalone verse, but you look at it through the lens of the context that Peter was talking about all the way through chapter two. Now, what was the context of chapter two? Do y'all remember? So the context of chapter two is this. Like if you made me put a thesis sentence to chapter two, Peter's point is that being a Christian means that you don't, just submit to God. But that being a Christian means that you have all these other things in your life that God calls you to submit to. For example, for example, um, earlier in chapter two, Peter talked about how that God allows these governing authorities in our lives and as Christians, we're called to submit to these governing authorities. That, you know, stuff like paying our taxes and, you know, driving the speed limit and following the laws of the land. God has put those governing authorities in our life and it's our calling to submit to those things. He also talked about in chapter two, Peter talks about how servants are to be subject or to submit to their masters. And I think it was Holler or Tyler, I can't remember that preached on that, but we went into great detail about how this is a, the context here when Peter says it's very different than like the American historical version of slavery. And so we hear that and like, man, that didn't sound right. But the American historical version of slavery was not really the kind of servants that they had in first century Hebrew culture. American historical slavery is man stealing, which is evil in the sight of the Lord. It's clear, it's evil in the sight of the Lord. And so to um, resist against man stealing or even uh, go to war to, to stop that injustice is, is righteous and it's justified. But this biblical concept of, of, of being a servant it's not man stealing, and so the call of the servant in the text, First Peter two, is to follow the example of Jesus and to submit, to trust God and to submit to your master. So those are the first two examples in chapter two, and then the third example Peter gives of this call on the believer to submit is Jesus Himself, and that's what we looked at last week. Let me read it to you real quick again, First uh, Peter chapter two verse one. He says, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you would follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Now, guys, at the end of the day, what was Jesus doing? Peter's, Peter's making reference to the cross there. And he's doing a couple things, we talked about it last week. He's given us an example of how we respond in unjust suffering. But what at the end of the day was Jesus doing? At the end of the day, on the cross, he was submitting himself to the governing authorities, even to the point of death. 
He was submitting himself to the governing authorities of the Romans, even to the point of torture and death. Now, here's a question. Why? Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus allow himself to be tortured? Why would he allow himself to submit to these evil governing authorities? Because think about it for a second. He didn't have to. Jesus didn't have to. I don't know if y'all remember or not, but he's God. A pretty big deal. Being God's kind of a big deal. And Jesus is God. And so at any moment, at any moment during the six hours on the cross where he was hanging there by his hands and his feet, at any second, any time he wanted to, he could have instantly taken himself off the cross. He could have called down Michael and called down Gabriel and called down about 20,000 angels and gone straight running Old Testament on those fools and killed every one of them but he didn't do it. Okay, why? Why did Jesus choose to submit to these earthly authorities? And the answer to the question of why he submitted himself to these authorities on the cross is very, very simple. Listen, it's because God had this greater plan that he was calling Jesus to fulfill and submission was a part of it. God had this greater God-exalting plan, which was what? The salvation of the world, and it required Jesus' submission in order for it to be accomplished. Now listen, I'm gonna say something, and I, I want everybody to listen to me. If you don't hear anything else I say today, I want you to hear this statement. Here's the thing. Every single solitary time in the Bible, every single time when God looks at a believer and says, I want you to submit to X, Y, Z, it's never to subjugate you. It's never to demean you. It's never to make you look inferior. It's never to make you look weak. Every single solitary time, God looks at a believer, male or female, and says, I need you to submit to X, Y, Z. It is always because God is asking you to do that so that it will fulfill this greater God-glorifying plan. Christians, Trust God, subject yourselves to the ruling authorities. Why? Because God has a plan. Christian servants, trust God, submit yourself to your masters. Why? Because God has a plan. Christ trusted God, submitted himself to the Romans. Why? Because God had a plan. And church, look at me. It's in that context. Peter's just walking us through chapter two. And it's in that context that the next example that Peter gives is he says, Christian Women, Christian women, submit yourselves to your husbands. Okay, why? Why? You remember what I told you? That every single time God asked a believer to submit, it's because he has this God-exalting plan that he's called them to. It is absolutely, positively no different for women. The call, the call, by God, two women to submit to their husbands. Guys, listen, it is in no way, it is in no way some backwards, culturally outdated, evil attempt to subjugate women. But rather, when you look at it in the context that it's meant to be looked at, you realize that God is saying to women, he's saying, look, I need you to do this. I want you to do this. I am calling you to do this because when you do, I am accomplishing something incredible through it. 
when you do this, I am accomplishing a bigger, larger, God-glorifying plan through this call of submission, okay? So before we jump into any kind of application, like what this looks like or how do you do it or whatever, I want you real quickly, we're gonna go back and we're gonna look at what is this God-glorifying plan that God is calling women specifically to fulfill when he says, hey, I need you to submit to your husbands. Now remember, we just read 1 Peter chapter two about Jesus being on the cross, submitting himself to the Romans in order to fulfill this God-glorifying you know, plan. And in the very next verse, 1 Peter chapter two, verse 24, after he says, you know, Jesus didn't revile and return, he trusted himself to God who judges justly. Look at 1 Peter two twenty-four kind of says what this plan is. He says, he himself bore our sins in the body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now return to the shepherd and the overseers have returned. So look, listen carefully. After pointing out Jesus' submission to the Roman authorities on the cross in order to fulfill God's greater glorifying plan, Peter says this is what the greater God glorifying plan was. He says, the reason Jesus submitted himself to the Romans and allowed himself to be crucified is the gospel. So paying the penalty of our sin, we'd be completely healed of our sin through the penalty that Jesus paid and we would be made righteous in the sight of God. And so other words, what Peter just said is this, Jesus submitted to God's plan so that the gospel would be enacted. Okay, just, it's just a straight running sentence. I need you to hear it. This is what Peter's saying. Jesus submitted when he didn't have to. He submitted, to, he submitted to God so that the gospel would be enacted. That's everything Peter just said now. The very next thing out of Peter's mouth, after he just explains, Jesus submitted for this God-glorifying plan of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very next words out of his mouth are 1 Peter 3, 1. Let's put it up. The very next words out of his mouth. Okay, you know how in the Bible they've got chapter two, then chapter three? In the original writing of it, there were no chapters. Some crazy people put them in. And so, just so, I don't, I don't chapter three is not meant to be separated from chapter two. So, so are, are you guys starting to see this? Submit to government authorities. Submit to masters. Jesus submitted on the cross. Why? Because God's got a greater plan to display the gospel. And the very next words out of his mouth is, likewise. Wives, submit to your own husbands. This is not it's not some one-off verse. It's not some backward, culturally outdated statement to subjugate women. This is a verse where the Lord God Almighty is saying to his beloved daughters, listen, that in the very same way that Jesus submitted himself in order to fulfill this gospel-displaying plan of God, he's saying, likewise, women, I want you to submit yourself to your husbands in order to fulfill this greater God-glorifying plan, okay? Now that begs the question, <clears throat> what, is, what is this greater God-glorifying plan that's gonna be enacted 
when I submit to my husband if I'm married, okay? Ephesians 5 actually says exactly what it is. All right, so if you've got a Bible, turn there quickly. Ephesians 5, chapter 22. This is a parallel verse where Paul is talking and basically saying the same thing, but he goes into more detail about what God is actually accomplishing through this dynamic between husbands and wives. Like what, what, what God wants you to do that for. In Ephesians 5, 22, he says, same thing. He says, wives, submit to your, hus- your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body in itself it's savior. And listen to the next part. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. When we, when we read that verse, we get real hung up on that word everything. And God doesn't want you to get hung up on the word everything. He wants you to get hung up on the very first part of the sentence. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also Wives submit to the husbands. And then he starts talking to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. He goes, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're all members of his body. And then he, then he, then he talks about marriage. He brings them back to Genesis and he, and, he, and he makes a statement about marriage. In verse 31, he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's marriage. And in the very next statement, he talks about what the meaning, the God ordained purpose and meaning of marriage is. In verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. What mystery is he talking about? That two people become one flesh, they get married. He goes, this mystery is profound, and watch what he says. He says, and I am saying that it, that's marriage, it refers, is a picture of Christ and the church. And so what Paul is saying, what the Holy Spirit inspired word of God is saying is this dynamic between the husband and the wife where the husband loves his wife and the wife submits to the husband what the scripture just said is that, that right there, that dynamic is a picture of the gospel. He's saying that that dynamic where the husband loves the wife and the wife submits to her husband, that is a physical representation. It's a physical picture of Christ in the church. And so Ephesians 3, um, Ephesians 3, excuse me, 532, Paul just drops a bomb on the culture's understanding of the purpose of marriage. He just drops a bomb on it. Because what the Bible says, guys, is that the primary purpose of marriage is not your happiness. It's what the culture says marriage is about. That's why marriages fall apart all the time because they think they're getting married to make them happy. They get married and they're like, I'm not any more happy than I was before and so it must be your fault so we're getting divorced. The Bible says that's not the purpose of marriage. What the Bible just said is that the primary purpose of marriage is not for two people to get together and give each other like this ultimate expression of love. Listen, what the Bible just said is that the primary purpose of marriage is to display the gospel to the world. The primary purpose of marriage is to be a picture of the gospel to the world. I do not care what the world says the purpose of marriage are 
or rather is, because the world didn't create marriage. God did. And the reason God created marriage is for two people to fall in love, for them to walk to the altar, and to make a never-ending, lifelong covenant between God and one another. And when they do that for the rest of their lives, they become a living, breathing, walking picture and witness to the world of what the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like. That's why God created marriage. And so in the, in the very same way that God the Father and Jesus and God the Son fulfill this specific role in this thing called the gospel, what this whole thing is about is it's saying that husbands and wives fulfill a specific role in marriage, which is a physical picture to the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that is God's greater plan. When you are submitting to your husband, you are showing the world what the gospel of Christ looks like in the same way that the church submits to Jesus. So do you submit to your husband. And I'll only just talk about this real quickly here and explain it just a little bit. So you've got God the Father, and then you have Jesus who's the head of the church. That's what we know. Jesus is the head of the church. And Jesus, even though he's God, even though he's equal to God, he submits himself to the Father. And then in Ephesians 5, what that just said is that the earthly picture of that relationship is the husband. That in the same way that Jesus is the head of the church, the scripture says that the husband is the head of the family. And so in the same way that Jesus loves and leads and serves and protects and laid down his life for the church as a husband, I'm called to love and lead and serve and protect and lay down my life for my wife and my family. Right, see that's God the Father and God the Son in their role and, and the husband. Then it says you have the church. Church, what is our role in the gospel? He told us, it already kind of tells us, what what does the church do in this thing called the gospel? The church is called to follow and submit to the leadership of Christ, right? Because Christ is the head of the church and we're called to follow his lead, to submit to his lead and to help fulfill the purpose of Christ here on earth. Okay, here's the thing. The earthly picture, the earthly demonstration of the church is the wife, the wife. That's why um, the church is always called the bride of Christ, right? Knowing again that the primary purpose of marriage is for you guys to get married, to go out the door and be a physical, living, breathing picture of the gospel. What he is saying here is that in the same way the church submits to the leadership of Jesus, the wife is called to follow and submit to the leadership of her husband. Okay, listen, the the call of the Lord to women to submit to the leadership of their husbands, again, it's in no shape, form, or fashion an attempt to subjugate women, but it's rather a call from Almighty God to his beloved daughters to be a witness to the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm gonna say something, and the more I've kind of studied this, the more I'm convinced of it that the call um, of the Lord to women to submit to their husbands is really the call of God on women's lives to live the life of a missionary, to live the life of a missionary. For, for those of you who are married and you step into this relationship, one of the greatest witnesses that you're ever gonna have for Jesus Christ and one of the greatest witnesses you're ever gonna have for the gospel of Jesus Christ is when you fulfill this role in your marriage because you're, you're, you're displaying it on a daily basis. 
And that's why women should never view this as a drudgery. This call to submit to the leadership of your husband, it should never be um, viewed as a weight that is put on you, but rather look at it as a precious opportunity, an incredible opportunity to help fulfill this greater God-glorifying plan of displaying to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? And so knowing that's why you're being asked to do it. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. You play a role in that marriage. You're displaying to the world that picture. That's why. That's why I ask you. So let's talk for just a minute about what it looks like. What in the world does it look like to submit to your husbands? And then we'll be done. <laughs> the best way I've ever heard this explained uh, or defined would be this way. To, to submit to your husband means that you follow your husband as he follows Jesus. To submit to your husband means you follow your husband as he follows Christ. It means you keep in mind that your husband biblically is fulfilling the, the role of Christ in the marriage. And as the head of the family, you follow and submit to his leadership as he follows and submits to Jesus. Now here's what this does not mean. Here's what this does not mean. Number one, it does not mean that you have to do something if that thing he's asking you to do is contrary to what the Lord would have you to do. Okay, you do not submit to your husband if he's asking you to sin. You don't have to do that. You do not submit to your husband as if, if he's asking you to do something that is contrary to the scripture. Women, your submission to your husband is always secondary to your submission to Jesus every single time. All right, here's the second thing, it's not. To submit to your husband, to follow uh, him as he follows Jesus, does not mean that whatever he says for you to do, you gotta do it. That's not what that means, right? If that dude is, is sitting in his easy chair and you're sitting in the couch beside him watching The Bachelor and, um, and he looks at you and says, hey, I need you to get up, go give me a glass of iced tea because the Bible says for you to submit to me. Then, then you, I heard that from a friend that, that did that. Um, no, I'm, I promise I've never done that. And, and here's what you do. You go, you get up, you go get him a glass of iced tea and you walk back and you pour it in his lap. That's what you do. That's what you do. When, the, when, I, got, when I first got married to Jennifer, I was, I was 22 and she was 21 and um, I had just gotten saved four years before. And so at 22 years old, I, I knew just enough Bible to be dangerous. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And, um, and so we, we just got married. We were kids. And she would be doing something that I didn't want her to do or argue with me or something. I'd be like, one. And I'd whoop open the Bible and be like, read that right there. It says you're supposed to submit to me. And, um, and she would look at me and this is what she would say. She goes, well, I'll tell you what. Yes, the Bible does say I'm supposed to uh, submit to you, but the Bible also says you're supposed to love me like Christ loved the church. And so when you start loving me like Christ loved the church, then maybe I'll submit to you. <laughs> now, in both services, women clap, but that ain't biblical either. <laughs> it's not. See, I was like, I'm writing that down right there. Man. That's not biblical. Neither one of those is a biblical picture of what you're supposed to do. And I'll show you that in a minute. But, you know, a, a one, she, she actually does this incredibly well, kind of walks that balance really, really well. And one, of the, one of the best ways I've ever really seen her live this out was when we moved 
to Austin and started the church. I talked a little bit about last week, but I had prayed for three years that God would make it clear that I was supposed to start a church. And I you know, God just absolutely dropped it in my lap, made it absolutely clear I was supposed to plant a church and this opportunity just fell in my lap. And, but she knew I had been praying for three years about it. And I was driving back the day I got the offer and I called her on the phone and, and I, said, I said, hey, I, I just got this offer. And uh, man, it's incredible. And I want you to start praying because I, I think we're gonna, we're gonna plant church. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, Matt, I don't have to pray about it because I know you have been. And if God is calling you to this, I'm in. That, that, that's the picture. She follows me as I follow Jesus. And she did, man. We, we, um, she left her home you know, that we had built. She left all of her friends, two little babies in tow. We, we moved to Austin, Texas, which for a couple Aggies is not the easiest thing in the planet to do. And I made $18,000 the first year. And we lived in a hotel for several weeks. And we lived in a really cruddy apartment after that for about two years. Why? Just because she loves me? No, she, she did love me. But the reason is she, she really, 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 really loves Jesus. She loves Jesus. And Jesus said to her, I want you to follow your husband as he follows Christ. And she did. Now, here's the thing. I, I can't tell you guys how many times over the years the, I've, I've seen the opposite of this happen, that I've, I've seen some guys say no to the call of God on his life because his wife for really selfish reasons absolutely refused to follow her husband as he followed Jesus. Now, guys, what I'm not saying, I'm not saying that men aren't supposed to ask their wives' opinion. You'd be an idiot if you'd, you didn't ask your wife's opinion. I'm, I'm not saying that you shouldn't seek the wisdom of your wife when you're making decisions because you'd be stupid not to seek the wisdom of your wife when you're making decisions. And, and, and I'm also saying this, that sometimes loving your wife like Christ loved the church means, men, that you say no to things that are better for you because it's not best for your wife. But what I am saying is that far too often, far too often, I have, and for really, really selfish reasons, really selfish reasons, instead of the wife following the husband as he followed Jesus, I've seen the husband be forced to follow his wife as his wife followed her fleshly desires. You see, women submitting to your husband, it means like in the big things, kind of like the move to Austin, but, but also in these smaller things, you, you follow his leadership as he's following the leadership of Jesus, okay? Now, I wanna talk real quickly to unmarried women, and especially here at the 11 o'clock service in downtown Austin, we've done the data, it's about 75% of the women in this room are unmarried, they're single, and so I'm gonna talk to you for a second, like what does this look like for you, and um, just, and because the fact that a lot of you will be married. So I, I want you to see something. Let's bring that text back up here and I wanna show you something. First Peter 3, 1. Peter says, you know, he's talked about the example of Jesus to display the picture of the gospel. And he says, likewise, wives. Now watch what he says next. He says, be subject to your own husband. Doesn't say women be subject, da, 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 da. He, he didn't say women be subject to men. He says, wives be subject to your own husbands. In other words, you need to remember, this is not a blanket call for all women to submit 
to men. It's not this blanket call for women to submit to multiple men. It's, it's this call of a wife. It's a specific call on a wife inside the covenant of marriage, and that's it, to portray the gospel to the world for a wife to submit to her husband. And so it means a couple of things. If you're, if you're a woman and you're, you're single or married for that, mat, for that matter, you don't have to submit to all men. You, girl, ladies, you don't have to submit to your boyfriend. I think you honor him. I think you show him respect because you're a Christian, not because of any kind of call to submit to him. What the Bible does say to single women, they're called to submit to their elders inside the context of the church. <clears throat> they're called to honor their father and they're called to submit to Jesus, right? Who is your husband, right? But you don't, start walking in this call to submit to this single man until he puts a ring on your finger. And as a matter of fact, one of the number one questions you need to be asking yourself if if deciding whether or not you're gonna marry a young man or not is, is this the guy that I'm willing to walk in this with? That ought to be a huge, big, fat question, women, that you're asking about a guy that you're dating. Is this the guy? that I'm willing to submit to, right? Now this dude, you gotta think about it because this guy, he might have a six pack, right? He might have a great car. He might have a great job. He might smell good. He might have great teeth. But if you're kind of looking at that dude and going, man, I don't know if I wanna follow this idiot for the rest of my life, then you don't need to marry him. You absolutely don't need to marry him. One of the ways that you know you're ready to marry a guy is you watch him and you see him following Christ. You're dating this dude and you see him submit to Jesus. And when you see that, I'm telling you, you see a guy that walks with the Lord, submits his life to Christ, I promise you, it will be a joy for you to willingly follow him as he follows Jesus. Now, last thing here, and we're done. What about women that are married to non-believers? Or what about women that are married to believers, but he's not following Jesus? Or he's being disobedient to the word of God? Remember what we learned so far. <coughs> Ephesians 5 explained the call the wives to submit. When the, when, when the Bible tells you that, that's the, that's the call for you to fulfill the greater God-glorifying plan of displaying the gospel to the world. And, there, and, and I said this, I said, there are very few times in your life you'll be a greater witness for Christ than when you obey this call, All right? And so it, it's the call, the, to, to submit your husband really is the call of the missionary. It's called to be a witness of the gospel. And if Ephesians 5 is not enough to convince you of this, look at the very next thing Peter says right out of his mouth after he says, hey, wives, submit to your own husbands. Watch the next thing he says, 1 Peter 3, 1, last thing. He says, likewise, wives, likewise, just like Jesus submitted, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, watch, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word, how? By the conduct of their wives. What he just said is that some of you are married to men that are believers, but they're disobedient to the word. 
Some of you are married to men that are not believers. And what Peter is saying is that one of the primary ways that unbelieving man, or one of the primary ways that that believing man that's not walking with Jesus will be one to the, wor- to the Lord is not with the witness of your mouth, but in honoring him, submitting to him in the same way that the church honors and submits to Jesus. And when he sees this unbelieving guy or this guy that's disobedient to Jesus, when he sees the way that you live your life, when he sees the way that you walk with the Lord, when he sees the way that you are honoring and respecting him, the scripture says, without a word, that's gonna win him to Christ. One of the most beautiful examples I've ever seen in that in my entire life are my parents. And so my mom was a believer and she, she loved the Lord. And my dad was not. And for the first 37 years of their marriage, um, let me just put it this way. My dad was disobedient to the word of God. He was disobedient to the word. And she, she obviously wasn't perfect in this at all. But I saw it, and, and he's told me this, but throughout their entire marriage, she didn't use his disobedience to the Lord as a license to belittle him or disrespect him or, or to bash him over the head with the gospel. And even when throughout the, really their entire marriage, he did not deserve it, she knew this verse. She knew the Bible and she loved Jesus. She loved Jesus and she served my dad and she loved my dad and she honored my dad and she submitted to the leadership of my dad. And after 37 years of marriage in 2002, she died. She passed away really suddenly. And when she died, my dad was still not a believer. When she died, it's like he had this moment of clarity. It's like he became aware really, really fast of the way that he had lived compared to the way that she had lived. That he, it, he just, it just hit him. I have lived for the desires of my flesh and she has lived throughout all of that serving and loving her Jesus and serving and loving me. And it was, I'm telling you, he got saved. He got saved, like saved. And you, you ask him, dad, how, what happened? He's a different man. He'll tell you, I didn't, I didn't get saved because somebody came up and witnessed to me. I didn't get saved because I was in church and I heard some sermon. I got saved because I looked back at the life of my wife and Jesus was all over it. And I want that. And I'm gonna tell you something, man. It's been 16 years since my mom died and my dad, I am telling you, he is a warrior for Jesus Christ. This guy was, man, he was a pagan he is a, he's 73, so awesome. We'll be in the Walmart parking lot or something. He's real big, he's a captain of the fire department. He's just, he's just old gray teddy bear now and we'll be walking in the Walmart parking lot and he'll see somebody walking by and he'll go, young man, have you ever asked Jesus Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior? <laughs> I'm like, dad, remember going to Walmart? He called me the other day. This is, this, I'm gonna talk about this at his funeral. He called me the other day just crying. And I said, dad, are you okay? And he goes, it just hit me. He goes, it just hit me mad. I am my beloved's and he is mine. That's the power of a woman that walks in the calling of the Lord. Here's the thing. I don't think there's anything 
I say, I don't think there's many things at all that are more dangerous to the kingdom of darkness than a woman that walks in a way that honors Jesus. I think it's a powerful tool in the hand of God. And so you have choice. When you come and encounter verses like this that to actually go out and live out are really, really difficult. You have a choice. You can live your life in a way that pleases you. You can live your life in a way that pleases the culture or you can live your life in a way that pleases and honors the Lord. And I'm telling you, if you live your life in a way that pleases and honors the Lord, you're gonna realize that God has a better story and a better way and a better plan than this world does. Let's pray. I tell you what, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I'd love for the women in this room that are single, but maybe have a desire to get married, I'd love to give you just a minute. I'd love for you to just pray for your future husband. Pray that God would write his name on that young man's heart and that he would begin before he ever meets you to submit to Jesus and to learn to follow the leadership of Christ. You pray that right now. For those of you here that are married to an unbeliever or married to a man that um, is a believer but disobedient to the word, I want you to pray that God would give you the strength and the wisdom to love that man and serve that man and honor that man even when it's not easy so that he would be one to the Lord without a word. And for those of you that are married, but you got a good marriage, just pray that God would give you the strength to display the gospel well through this. Lord, again, I thank you for the power of your word. It always surprises me. It always blows me away just to see the power of it and the wisdom of it and the glory of it. And you just turn the wisdom of the world on its head. And Lord, it's just such an honor to get to obey you. And Lord, I pray you'd give all of us, men and women, I pray men in here that they would love their wives the way Christ loved the church give themselves up for them. And I pray for the women in this room, pray you give them strength and wisdom, power and anointing to walk on the call of their lives. And I ask that today in Jesus' name for your glory, Lord. Amen. Amen, church, let's stand together. Let's worship God.